welcome to the World of Speakers podcast brought to you by Speaker Hub. In each episode, we interview a professional speaker and reveal their very best tips and tricks. You'll learn to improve your presentation skills, keep your audience engaged, and learn how to grow your business to get more gigs and make more money. Here's your host, Ryan Foland. Hello, everyone. It's that time again when you've chosen to listen to an episode of The World of Speakers. And you're in luck today because we brought somebody who created something that created a buzz around the world. Now, that buzz also fizzled out and died in a big fiery death, but those are some of the best stories and lessons to be learned. His name is Max Ringelheim. Is that right, Max? You nailed it. Got a little ring to it, right? A little Ringelheim. Ringelheim's got a ring to it. (laughs) Ringelheim's got a ring to it. He's passionate about being a tech entrepreneur, and he's got an interesting story as the founder, uh, essentially, of the 2015's viral spread of the hoverboard, which I have my own unique hoverboard story, and I'm sure we all do. Yep. But they're gone, and that's (laughs) what I'm actually excited to dig into as well. But that has essentially led him to create a new media brand called When Going Viral. Ooh, the buzzword going viral. That's what everyone chases after. I want to go viral. <laughs> but uh, it works, and uh, I'm sure there's a method behind it. So welcome to the show, Max. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. Excited to be here and uh, get right into it and, and chop it up with you. Well, let's chop up some story sandwiches, because instead of talking about how awesome you are, we want to learn about a story in the moment that changed the way you perceived life, something that impacted you personally, something that made you who you are, just some sort of a story that moved you, shaped you, is memorable. And I think we'll get to know you a little bit through that. Yeah, totally. Again, thank you for having me. And I think, you know, there's one specific story that I think has certainly helped shape me today. You kind of hinted it, hinted at it with 2015's viral hoverboard fad. You know, so myself and two buddies of mine back in late 2014, early 2015, before no one knew what a hoverboard was like they do today, <laughs> had discovered this device, you know, in China. Well, real quick, real quick, real quick. The hoverboard, as far as I knew, was what Marty McSorley was riding around in the future. And so in my mind, as a kid, I was like, I want a hoverboard. But for me, that like the hovering part. But yeah, then you put two wheels on it on the side and go forward. And here we are. But hoverboard. Sorry to interrupt. Keep going. Here we are. Exactly. I mean, uh, there was a business insider story about our company comparing it directly to Marty McFly. So you're all good. That that comparison certainly got made in 2015. And, uh, you know, what I can say is that story, no doubt about it, really shaped me into who I am today. There's no doubt that when you had this opportunity to start this amazing viral company called Funky Duck that literally took the world by storm and created this massive global phenomenon around 2015's most popular device back in 2015. That type of 15, 16 month time frame of my life was something that was invaluable for me to experience. And as a 24, 25 year old entrepreneur at the time in 2015, who was very deeply passionate about tech startups and tech entrepreneurship at the time, every day that went by in that business and seeing the different things that we were exposed to, whether it was doing business with Kendall Jenner or having Mark Cuban reach out to our company to want to potentially get us on Shark Tank or invest directly in our business to, as we all know, late 2015, hoverboards 
catching fire, viral YouTube videos popping up on the internet of people falling off like Mike Tyson and hurting their back after a unfortunate fall on a hoverboard and ultimately the government banning the devices. You know, that's a hint hint of what this story all compounded in this 16 month period of my life. And after that experience, I felt super, super empowered and motivated to want to share this invaluable story with the rest of the world because I felt, you know, so deep into my core that there were so many remarkable lessons learned that other aspiring entrepreneurs, like the ones that you interact with all the time at UCI, Ryan, could benefit from by hearing my story and sharing these different lessons learned and putting them or even more savvy entrepreneurs who are in their 30s or 40s in a position where they could learn from this story and not make the same multi-million dollar mistakes that we make, right? And so there were so many different takeaways from it that I just felt really empowered to want to share that story more broadly. Part of why I'm speaking with you today, right? Because I'm just very passionate about paying those lessons forward, right? And ultimately, it's part of what has materialized in terms of this media company that I'm creating now and when going viral and ultimately happy to dive more into that if you'd be interested or... Yeah, well, no, we're, right now we're interested in you and what happened in that moment and how it shaped you. What's funny is that when you're talking about it, I didn't really hear anything about how terrible it was. <laughs> we sort of skipped to it happened and then you were super excited about it. So like, I would imagine that there was a bit of a crush that happened in there. We, we spoke very 10,000 foot level. I heard hoverboard, I heard viral, and then I heard crash. But I'm actually like interested in maybe that inciting incident, when did things change? What went wrong? Because what you just explained, we I think we all experienced from the outside. So maybe you can share one or two of those key lessons based on like that moment. I'm still, I'm, I want to know how you go from that rise to fall and how that changed. Yeah. I mean, so like, for instance, one thing that took place that now I hold near and dear to my heart in business, in some of the current work that I do with some of my clients that I represent here in the States you know, was, you know, it's uh, March, April, 2015. Our brand goes viral on the internet. We have hundreds of orders coming in to our company, right? And- Top of the world. On top of the world, exactly, yeah. And we don't have enough inventory to fulfill our customers' orders demand. And we are patiently waiting day by day. And then day by day turns into week by week for our hoverboards to arrive from China that we- Oh, so people were ordering them, but there was not enough of them to fill the orders. Correct, yes. So yeah, I didn't know that, okay. So that experience, right? And we would get hoverboards and you know, we get 50 here, 100 there, but we're getting tons and tons of orders, right? Like we can't keep up with the pace at which we're experiencing the velocity of sales. And you know, it really created a, a very important lesson learned and moment in my life, right? Where if you're gonna be trying to- launch a major CPG company, right? A consumer packaged good type product line. And you're going to be trying to work maybe with whether it's A-lister celebrities, right? The top of the cream of the crop, or even like C-lister and D-listers, right? You've got to make sure that you're in a healthy position from an inventory on hand standpoint to be able to fulfill orders and make sure you have a proper forecast in place to fulfill orders. And ultimately that was one very important moment that you know, had a lot of other collateral damage, I can promise you, that was tied to that, but that has had a monumental impact on shaping me as a, you know, more savvy entrepreneur, more 
professional business person to be able to handle in the future for some of my current work endeavors. And, you know, ultimately uh, happy to, to, to share some more anecdotes that created more shapeful events in my life. today. Yeah, no, that, that I liked it. That was the kind of story that I think is interesting where you had the success, but you sort of forgot to figure out the back end of that. And that in itself had, sounds like a larger trickle effect because people are ordering, they're not getting them. That probably creates ill will for the larger brand. And then on top of that, people slipping and falling and then to put insult to injury when they started getting catching on fire. And maybe that even was a result of this sort of boom in the first place to just manufacture them as crazy and fast as possible. It's interesting sort of reflection case study to look back on. A hundred percent. Yeah. You learned that the hard way. And I personally have learned some big lessons the hard way, but it's personal. Again, it's interesting. I didn't hear I didn't hear any of your words that you chose to use about how terrible and awful that was just for your own emotional. You sort of jump right to how amazing of a lesson it was. And so my question is, like, if if somebody would have come back to you when you were 19 years old and they said, hey, there was this really popular door stopper back in the day and we went mail roll, which is like everybody had mail in orders and it was just amazing. And like a parallel story back in time. And then the person literally was like, so the lesson is the similar lesson being prepared for what you're going to, what you know, what you're putting out there. I'm curious, and maybe we can transition this into the next section. How, as a speaker, do you reach that 19 year old kid with your experience that you personally had? And like you and I, we learned our lessons because we were involved, our ass was on the line and relationships are on the line and finances on the line and things get pushed to the brink and maybe you turn to substance or, or unhealthy ways to, to counterbalance the stress. Like all of that stuff is just like, for me, what is that real slap in the face lesson? And I'm assuming there's, there's that behind the scenes, but how do you as a speaker articulate that to an audience for them to, I guess I want to say like feel the pain because it, if somebody in that story of like, Oh, this happened, this happened, this happened for me, like without that, pain moment so I can see and I work with 19 to 20 year olds at UCI as you said that like it them and how important is it for them to experience something like that on their own for them to actually make that versus them hearing it and ending up making the same mistake until they are the one that gets cut or hit in the face and now they're like oh right so I want to use that as the prompt for this next section because I think so many people have amazing stories, stories of tragedy, stories of crazy hero, heroism, hero, <laughs> heroism, heroism, okay. just when fate landed the wrong deck of cards and like all is lost. And one of the most amazing things that the lessons learned from it create great material for keynotes, great material for lessons, because they're not just book learnings. And so how do you, and this is where I want to know the art of your ability to communicate this. How do you tell this tragic story? in a way that is empowering, like what tactics and mechanisms? Because one, I would think would be like really sharing with them what really happened. So we're maybe they're like, oh my gosh. And then at the same time, is that too scary? And what's the threshold of that? I know I just spoke a lot there, but it's- No, you're fine. I, I totally follow you and I'm gonna try and do my best and just, if you want to unpeel it further. Yeah, so yeah. as a speaker, let's assume people who are listening, they've got their own crazy, crazy story. Mechanically, how, what are these elements or tactics to get it up on the stage in an effective way so that people actually learn with you and not just like sucks for you and then they do it themselves? Yeah. Yeah. So I think one thing that 
in your question, I want to make sure I stress is like, when you have one of these types of stories, right, and there's many of them out there, it's really important to be able to like speak very humbly about it, right, and be a complete open book, and be positioned. And this is how I conduct my workshops, right, in my public speaking endeavors that I am personally invested in and continuing to push on is, you know, by showcasing that authentic, humble way of sharing this story, but with a smile on your face and not like, you know, feeling like you're in the the gold drums, the, you're just, you're feeling so empowered to want to share this with others that they can learn from it. And they can pretty instantly realize pretty quickly that like you're there to try and equip them with some new skills new different ways of like problem solving and critical thinking to get them excited about that. That's one way that I want to definitely call out that's really important. The other thing that's really important about how I try to really emphasize for those who are participants in my workshops and in my talks, how they can take those lessons learned and apply it to their own business is essentially what I do throughout my workshops and many other facilitators, I'm sure, try to do this as well. I try to really put my audience in the driver's seat, in my shoes back in 2015. And so the way in which I structure and walk people through my story is month by month, scenario by scenario. And when we get to really mission critical moments in the story, Ryan, where there are multi-million dollar questions that got to be answered, I'll leave my audience on a cliffhanger and I'll stop the story right there. And I'll say to the audience, hey, here are the questions facing the business right now. Based on what you know, and without me giving away the rest of the story, how would you try and answer these questions based on what you know? And I'll typically leave a couple of minutes at that moment for them to ask me any questions, right? So I can fill in any gaps that they might have. And then I give them an opportunity to work collaboratively in trying to come up with these answers. People then return to the audience, share their answers. I give them feedback on it. And so I think, you know, doubling down on the humbleness and paying those lessons forward and putting them in the driver's seat, you know, these aspiring entrepreneurs or first-time entrepreneurs or anyone at a Fortune 500 company that's looking to learn more about virality, whatever audience it is, they are all of a sudden like really feeling invested in the hour, two hours, sometimes three or four hours that they're investing into this interactive workshop. And ultimately we end with those lessons learned and takeaways and we try to cater it to whatever audience it might be that's listening to make sure that they're able to take that into their workplace or into their startup. Does that make sense? Yeah. Choose your own adventure, it sounds like. Yeah, to some extent, for sure. I, I don't know if anybody remembers who's listening to this, but there used to be these choose your own adventure books where you'd get to like the end and it would be, you know, the person's hanging off a cliff and like, what would you do, A or B? And then you like make a decision. So there's a bit of, you know, like, as you said, the driver's seat. And I do like that as a concept. And I, I was interested also that you're having people pair or partner up and it creates this conversation. So I'm curious when they come back and once they answer, are you like right answer, wrong answer? Here's what I should have done. Just thinking formulaic, formulaically for other people who, who want to structure their talks. No doubt. So when the audience returns and they share their answers and everyone gets to hear everyone else's answers, right? I'll give feedback immediately to each group as they're presenting their solutions and what they came up with. Do you keep stuff in the bag? Like, for example, if somebody actually guesses and did exactly what you did, but that was the wrong thing to do, are you telling them that in this evaluation? Oh, totally. Yeah. I'm I'm explaining to them, hey, makes sense on the surface, but here's why that's not the right answer. 
Okay, so then you do, you sort of reveal what it is based in real time versus telling, getting everybody's answers and then like the big reveal. Correct, yeah. Like I'll hear everyone's, each group's answers and I'll give feedback on each group's answers as they present them. And then I'll continue on with the story afterwards. If one of the groups obviously provides an answer that's really, really wise and really foreshadowing the future, like of what might happen if they don't implement that solution, I'll certainly say that without giving away the rest. Be like, ding, ding, like you got it. Yeah, I'll say like, hey, that's a really, really smart tactic that you're thinking about taking as a group. And I really could get behind supporting that because you're about to hear what unfolds that was the opposite of that, right? You know what I'm saying? (laughs) I won't give it away because I don't want to give away the story, of course, but I will certainly tell that group, good on you for thinking that way. Like that was so well done. In the groups that maybe come up with a solution that wouldn't have worked out so well, I'll constructively explain why that wouldn't work out so well after they after they present their solution so that they are well aware of why maybe in a quick thinking mentality, they've got to be a little bit more open eyes to what else might go wrong by doing that. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Does this strategy apply to a keynote where you don't necessarily have that small intimate audience with groups and you're up on stage, you know, 45 minutes or an hour, even hour and a half, do you have a structure that works in an efficient way with a large audience? Yeah, totally. I mean, so I think my story, you know, it's a 16-month long story. I can slice and dice my workshops to fit a four-hour long workshop or a 10-minute or 40-minute long keynote, right, et cetera, et cetera. I think when folks want to invite me in to do a keynote, right, I'll provide the necessary snippets of my story, depending on what topic they want me to speak on, maybe in this case, the hoverboard, to give them enough context around what went down and what went on and obviously provide the right motivation, inspiration, education to their audience around what they're looking for. No doubt about it, my workshops that I've been working on and really feel like I've now perfected over the last now six years, right? And we'll get into that. I know in your third portion of the interview, so I don't want to give it away, but it takes a while to really understand and really have a full grip on your story so you can communicate it properly as a public speaker. And ultimately, like in a keynote setting, there's no doubt that I'll, you know, truncate, right, the story into short form. And I will reveal whatever outputs that particular organization or audience is looking for, you know, off of particular elements of my story or many of the other lessons that have come from but with the, with and I'm sorry to interrupt, but with this specific, I'm just looking from a tactical standpoint, the idea of a workshop that you have a story and you are sharing your story with cliffhangers, choose your own adventure, engage the audience, they talk about it, they reveal it, they either guess it or there's a learning lesson. And that's, a, I think that's a fun structure and you know, it's a great format for a workshop. In the keynote setting, I totally understand all that. It's very custom to the person and you're hitting the marks on the head for them. But do you employ that strategy of a cliffhanger, pulling the audience, getting feedback and mechanism? Or is that really just more for a workshop? Yeah, I would say that the type of interaction that I do typically in my workshops is much more conducive for that 30, 40, 50, maybe maximum 100 you know, type purse audience size, right? It's smaller form. I don't think for other public or aspiring public speakers out there, you can have the same type of dynamic take place when you're talking maybe in front of a thousand or... Right, it would have to modify, but I was just saying, I'm just curious, because that seems like a a pretty compelling strategy as this sort of strategy of a cliffhanger, not telling that end and and getting... I was curious if you implemented that 
in the keynote format. It would obviously have to be a different format, but it might be the same cliffhanger. And then like, everybody raise your hand if you think I did this or everybody that like, I just, I'm looking for this as a unique tactic for people to take and play. But, and if you haven't done that, they might have an idea to do that. But I, yeah, no, your example is something that I haven't done to date to be clear. So yeah, I wouldn't want to like try and attempt to convey how that would work. But I think if you create it in a short form manner, you might be able to. Yeah, no, I, I just, the concept of totally agnostic of your story and you, this idea seems like a really cool spot of, it's a, like a choose your own adventure tactic in your speech, like stopping. And then I can imagine pulling the audience, you know, it's like one way or the other. And you have, if the majority is like that, like, I love you guys, but you went down with me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can see that. Yeah. That's a good, uh, I like that. And this really stitches back to where I was most curious in your story about how to get the lesson across to people because everyone has these lessons, but I still feel, and maybe it's, and I don't want to say it's this generation, it's just people in general. If you share this tragic story from rise to fall and the lessons that you learn, sometimes I think half the time they're like, oh, that's okay. It's entertaining. It doesn't really, yeah. I mean, however much we want to tie it to deliverables and the action items and the mission critical that they'll recognize when they're in the moment, they're like shit sitting the fan for them. And like, just so that, because I think there's so much power in learning from lessons, but how do we do that? And this idea of giving them ownership and maybe that that like wakes them up in the middle of the show, right? They're like, wait. And if they do make that decision and you like commit to a final answer, that's what you guys do. Yes, you do it. Be like, you just went broke, Rob. You're bankrupt. Like you just, you lost your car. You lost your wife. You lost your thing, your house. And it like, just to kind of like, maybe that's just like to give them a little bit of that personal ownership. And I think that happens in the workshops, but just as a strategy, I'm saying for listeners using that, give them the choice. And that really puts them in your shoes. And then makes them like, wait, just imagine, everybody raise your hand. Imagine right now, if literally your wife then left you and you're, you lost your house and your car got repossessed. And like, just physically think about that for a moment based on that one decision. Now, everybody else over here, congratulations. You ride the train, you did this, you guys are making all kinds of money, but it could be that close. So that is a concept. I'm, I'm now sort of like really interested on where I can implement that or where other people could. So Thank you for going on that journey. I wasn't trying to be difficult, but it was like, no, no, you're very welcome. Glad it's helpful. And hopefully for those that are listening, they can take something from it. It's the, how about this? We'll name it something. We're going to name it the Max Ringel. What could this be? This could be like the, the Ringelheim adventure. The Ringelheim adventure. I love it. <laughs> and, and what it does is like, oh my gosh, this is so stupid. I love bells, but I could actually, and I have a bell usually with me and I use it, but it could be like, and then ding, 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 like ring the bell and be like, time to choose i'm off stage for a minute the ringel hyman maybe it's like the ringel hyman decision like <laughs> what would you do and then like it's a tactic where you stop make people commit to it and then actually tell them like this is now what you have experienced totally and what i would also add is i think that there's and i don't do this that often i've done it in the past but one of the ways that i think my workshop can really be helpful for audiences is at the very end after sharing my lessons learned, takeaways, all that good stuff, you set up one other additional exercise. And that exercise... Ringelheimen situation? Well, the actual companies participating, right? Get mm. a chance to try and leverage some of those lessons learned or the tactics from the story within their own business and maybe some upcoming decisions that they have coming up. Oh, so pick a decision. Say, okay, guess what? New situation. You happen to work at said company, which is their company. It happened to be this date at this time. And in 10 minutes, you have to make a decision, right? And so it comes back on them. 
And then literally they decide, which it will be interesting to get them to interact. And then like, then it's the real cliffhanger. All right, get out there, make that decision. Let's see who's right. And it gives you a chance to follow up. Yeah, no doubt. And I think it's really relevant in the world of like, and I'm trying actively to work with more companies. And as I say this, it makes so much sense to me. And it's kind of why I'm liking this conversation a lot because it's like, it always gives you a new angle to think about your own stuff that you've been doing for a while. Yeah, it could give you, as part of your onboarding, you're like, okay, I need one really, really heavyweight problem that literally could mean the difference between bankruptcy or IPO. What are your board members the most fearful of? Okay, just I just need to know, great. I'm not, don't worry about it. And then you bust that out in the end. <laughs> yeah. I could even, and this is, I'm like this, where I would like maybe even put on a different persona or a hat or like, and come out like impersonating the boss. Be like, hey, y'all, this is so-and-so. I'm C- <laughs> I mean, you got to be careful with that, but it, that's just more of like the, I think if you make the situation fun and lively, it becomes less serious and they can. Totally. No, hundred percent. And it's definitely one of the things that I've noticed has worked well for me over the years of doing this, you know, iterating, modifying, you know, Ryan, like I, and I think you would appreciate this. Like I did this talk for the first time in like mid 2016, after I'd left the hoverboard space after the government banned the device. So you couldn't sell them anymore. And, you know, it was just amazing. The first time I had done it, a couple of the audience members came up to me and were like, that was maybe the coolest story I've ever heard in my life. And it was only a 10 minute presentation at the time. And you heard that a couple of more times after repeating it a few more times. And then, you know, a university in New York invites me to do it in a classroom setting. We are transitioning into the next right here. Like you're transitioning for us. So I want to talk about how you build your business. And literally, you just started with this idea that you tested a talk for 10 minutes. You got some feedback. So we're now in the part where you're going to tell us how you have built your business, how you were selling into your course, how you're building this thing, like leveraging the stage for it. Totally. Yeah, I mean, for me, and I'll I'll go back right back there, right? Start off with a 10-minute presentation. Had people come up to me afterwards. They were just like, that might have been the coolest story that I've ever heard in my life. And you hear that a couple of times in a row because you get a couple more opportunities to share it. And you know, that light bulb kind of goes off in your head that maybe there's something here that people want to hear on a consistent basis. And all those talks, right? For everyone listening, all done for free. There's no payment. I'm not even thinking for a second about any sort of payment, right? Yeah, but you notice the bomb dog that comes up next to stage and sits down to identify that like you've got something worth looking at here. Yeah, worth pursuing. And, you know, as public speakers, typically you'll feel hopefully really empowered by the story you're telling, right? That's why you're dedicating the time to do it. So all those check boxes and dots connect. From there, you get an opportunity by putting yourself out there, which everyone listening should be trying to do, always be putting yourself out there. So let's get specific. We know we got to go out there. So what did you do to put yourself out there? What is the tactic that you specifically employ? Because I find our listeners love it when people find like the examples, because we we know that we have to go out there and put ourselves out there. So how did, or what didn't work for you, which is just as important to help us save time? Yeah, no doubt about it. I think approaching different school institutions, whether on the high school level or the university level, are the perfect place for you to start. Because you typically, if you're more of an educational speaker, which I like to consider myself, right? That type of environment is a complete match. A business class at whether UCI or Baruch College or Fordham University. Or Santa Barbara, go Gauchos. <laughs> are going to appreciate what story you have to tell in this capacity. And from my side, putting yourself out there with a free workshop for an hour long to equate to the start and end point of a class where in a 16-week long semester or whatever it might be, 
ex-teacher can feel really confident that your story is going to blend into what they're going to be teaching maybe during their digital marketing two or three week long phase or their e-commerce, getting your early customers, product market fit phase, whatever it might be. That's just like a square peg in a square hole fit. And when you're in the world of building a business, which creating a public speaking career is just building a business within a different vertical than a traditional you know, mom and pop store or whatever it might be. You got to throw a lot of, as I say, and hopefully you're okay with this, throw a lot of shit at the wall and see what sticks. And that is one way of doing it that certainly has helped me. And I'm still, and I wanted to share this with your audience, like it's a marathon. You're not going to be on huge stages from day one or even day 100 or even day 2000. You know, you're going to literally be out there sharing it with audiences of two people, which no one should be upset about doing, to be very clear. Well, hold on. I'll, I will make everyone not feel bad. And I probably said this before, but my mom always told me, not. I mean, this is way before I was wanting to become a professional speaker. She always told me, right, it just takes one. Like if only one person shows up, now, if, nobody, if nobody shows up, she's clear and transparent. That's not good. But if just one person does, it can make all the difference. So my mom says it's okay. I would agree with that completely. And one of my business coaches, who's just an amazing, amazing individual. His name is David Meltzer. And uh, from my side, David Meltzer, as a, a coach of mine and someone that I just admire so dramatically, he has shared on multiple occasions, doesn't matter if there's two or 20 or 50, like if you're inspiring and paying your lessons learned to one individual, like your mom said, and you're, you know, just remark just there, that's more than enough, right? You just ideally change someone's life. And I'm curious here, just from a strategy standpoint, if you are just at that one or whatnot, how have you been utilizing social media and capturing these interactions to create your own virality? Because I would assume that if you're teaching about virality, you have some tips based on your lessons about virality. So speaking to that in particular, what does that look like for a speaker? How do you become viral as a speaker? And is that something you can actually attain or go for, or is a whole myriad of factors for actually to be viral. And it's not necessarily, you're not necessarily going to blow up, but it's like, here's some things to get you on the way. Talk to me about that. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, the opportunity for any one speaker to just, you know, think whether it's one talk he's done or 50 talks he's done. Or she, by the way, just for everybody out there or them, just being super cool with everybody. No doubt. It's, you know, it's unlikely just think after that one particular talk that, oh, wow, you know, we're going viral and instantly, right? No, we know that. We know that doesn't work. But what, because you're the vi- you're literally the viral expert with the company and media brand that is, let's go viral. So I want to know some viral tips for speaking or some of the concepts that we can apply. No doubt. I think this idea of capturing everything that you're doing, right? So you have this loop of continuous content that you could be promoting out, but in a consistent manner, because consistency is so important in this discussion. When we're talking about that. Now, do you have to be, and I'm just being pointed here just to get the good stuff. Is consistency a requirement for virality? Because, you know, sometimes, yeah, maybe the argument, and I'm curious your answer, is it that if you're constantly showing up, you have a better chance of one of those things going viral? But there are some people literally like, it's the one thing that they do that goes. So how does that equate? Yeah, totally. So in the world of virality, and hopefully your speakers can take some tips from this, I'm very big personally on trying to create what I call like these jaw-dropping, eye-popping type moments, huge emotional triggers, okay? So for me, if I'm going to advise a speaker on attempting to try and 
go viral, experience some virality. Or tap into or, or use these tactics to get more exposure because viral is like an extreme level. For sure. You've got to be ideally triggering a really important emotion inside of your audience. Again, whether it's five people or 50 or 5,000. Obviously, if we're talking to 5,000 people at once and you nail that emotional trigger right there, your math likes to indicate that we're going to have a better chance of really experiencing some heavier traction, right? So do we need to get more emotional? <laughs> yeah, I think a little bit more emotional is really important in that world because that's one of the key things in some of my studying of you know virality and the topic. That's a very important, consistent trend that I see is this idea that via, for instance, social media content and such, that we're able to create these different real impactful emotions on people that then want to share that emotion with others within their network, et cetera, right? That's where we start to see. Now, if you're saying like the consistency is where, you know, you sort of have to start. And I still am curious to that question, is consistency a necessity for virality or really is it just as possibly random that you do once and it works if all the other elements are secure? Yeah, I would always advise towards consistency for sure. So my next question is then knowing that we need consistency as a baseline, can't just plan on a one-time shot, flash in the pan, we get that. You're talking about creating these emotional triggers, but like if you're emotionally triggering consistently, like I feel like that's what people are scared of. So is it you're just sort of creating high value content and then every once in a while you try to pop and get super emotional or do you wait for an authentic real life event to happen? And then I, like just the mechanics of it, because people are curious about this stuff. So I'm consistent, but if I'm consistently trying to emotionally impact people, like people might be like, I don't want to follow this guy because he's emotional all the time. How do we balance that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, and when you take that step back, it's also a part of like figuring out who your audience is going to be that's hopefully going to then trigger that eventual huge amount of traction that you're looking for, right? You're not supposed to be everything for everyone. In the world of business, we know about target audience, et cetera. So ideally, I'm a huge Gary Vaynerchuk fan. I'm a huge David Meltzer fan. I can listen to their material all day long in a consistent fashion. It's always going to resonate. Okay, so let's pull with those two because neither of them are highly emotional every time. But like, what is it about some of their particular content that might perform better? Or is it just they built this brand over an eon of time? And it's like, so this is that like, I feel like the word virality, I'm just really trying to get it because is it attainable for speakers? Is it this like 20 year overnight success? Like, so specifically to David and to, and to Mr. Vaynerchuk, Gary Vaynerchuk, Tell me, like, from your experience, the content that keeps you coming back, that makes you want to share. What are some of the elements that they share? I think they're both very huge on this idea of consistently telling the stories and the lessons learned from their own individual stories. That doesn't need to be necessarily a business that they started. It could have been a particular experience that they went through. They're very consistent. And I would venture to say that. Well, but yes, they are consistent. We got that as a baseline, but what in the one out of 30 posts, what qualities, what is it that has the most potential for them to jump out and that maybe post to be viral? Are there certain, like based on your research and your studies and trends, one, we know is this emotional trigger, but like, is there a length amount of time? Is there the two second grabber? Is there the six second, like, are there some of those real tactical things so we can- Yeah, no doubt. I mean, short form content continues to dominate, right? They're amazing- hooks, right? And ways in which they introduce their videos and ways in which they showcase the different, going back to that emotions of their audience that are listening to them in that content, right? Where they're speaking with a group of only 10 people. And yet the people that are there are just completely in tune on what they're having to share at that point in time. 
there's amazing things without having to reinvent the wheel that you can take from that. And I think that they're always consistent on trying to provide a particular piece of value in every one of their pieces of content that come about. You know, like they want people to leave that 30 second or 60 second remark or seven second remark with something that they just got provided for them for free, right? Yeah, I, I totally agree. And one example that just came to mind, some of Gary's, I think, reels that pop up or things on Twitter that go more viral from what I'm seeing is when it's literally 18-year-old or 39-year-old who's basically asking him side-by-side question, cameras on them, they're mic'd, and it's got text layover. So you can listen or hear exactly what's saying. And the person is like, I'm 18 and I'm unmotivated. And Gary goes, well, I'm X amount of years old and it took me 20 years to get to here. So like, you got way ahead of me at this point. And they're like, oh, are you really? And they're like, yeah, dude, you got this, go get it. But Gary's not speaking to the camera. He's talking with the person and you see that emotional impact. So I'm just listening to what you're saying and queuing in on that to where that has these elements where it's humble because he's not talking into the camera. You're seeing that he's talking with a real person. And so you can like be an observer. And then if the person asks a question that you actually have, it almost feels like Gary's giving you the answer. And so that I feel has those elements of virality without being like a single camera emotional crying to the face or trying to pull the heartstrings you try to. No, 100%. You've noticed it. I've noticed it. I agree completely with everything you just mentioned. And that's awesome. I think that'll be great for your audience to hear from because I think it's amazing. I consistently am saving those videos. I'm consistently resharing those videos because it sometimes feels like they're talking directly to me in a particular circumstance. But you're also one party removed and you don't have that pressure. And so I like that because that gets right back to what we're talking about in the beginning, which is how to communicate with your audience about your story. It's in a humble and authentic way. And if somebody's asking you for advice and you're just sharing your humble opinion and not trying to sell somebody into something, I think that has that emotional connection that you mentioned. And tie that all in with what we talked about in the last section about giving people ownership in the conversation and knowing that this interaction and and the importance of the emotional experience, not just that you're creating to the viewer, but that you're creating to people in the area. And if I were to take what we've talked about here and just think about defining what going viral is, maybe it's just consistently helping people understand that if they have an emotional connection with your content, which could be conversation, could be this, could be that, could be that, then they're more likely to share. And people usually share, I'm fascinated with the difference between a like and a share. And then when somebody likes and shares, usually when somebody likes something, it's like an arm's distance. They don't necessarily want it on their feed, but when you share it, you're actually creating that content in your feed. And so it has to represent your brand. You have to be proud of it. You have to know that if somebody's going to hate on it, like they're going to hate on you. Yeah, you're getting at the point of audience, other audiences it being worthy of this emotion that you went through. And you want to share it. It makes people share stuff that makes them feel smarter. And so if you watch something and you feel like you became smarter, you want to share that with your friends because you want them to feel smarter. So these elements of virality, sometimes I, I get I'm trying to find the right word. I'm Sometimes the word itself can be a bit buzzy and a bit selly because it sells this large promise to get to the top of the mountain fast. And sometimes when you take shortcuts, you have to really watch where you're stepping and you can step on a landmine. And it goes back to, to become viral, it's just constantly showing up, being yourself in an authentic, humble way and using the technology and platforms to give people a chance to share that to their networks. And if you can tap into that network effect, it's not as much about 5,000 people with share to 5,000. It's like 
people want to share this. And if they want to share it and then they see somebody else shared it, then it creates momentum. And then at the end of the day, the internet is like whatever content gets shared the most, gets viewed the most. Otherwise, it's just stuck in an algorithm. So that's my little stump speech on my rally. And I appreciate you helping to create some context and connecting some of those dots. <laughs> yeah, it's a web. It's a web out there. It all can be as interconnected as you want it to be when those triggers are tapped into emotionally and ultimately other audiences want to experience what you just experienced. I feel like we've gone through an emotional journey here today, bro. <laughs> That's good. That's good. That's what I wanted, right? So. <laughs> if, uh, if people want to emotionally connect with you or see some of your content and decide for themselves that they want to share it because they're emotionally impacted of your consistent content, your workshop, but what? what's the best way to find you and get in touch? Yeah, so it's just Max Ringelheim. And I know my info will be on the episode, but that's just R-I-N-G-E-L-H-E-I-M. So Max Ringelheim is my handle on all social media platforms. My company, When Going Viral, the handle is just at When Going Viral, just like how it sounds. My email is just firstname.lastname at gmail. So anyone here that listens, that's looking for advice, guidance, support, you name it. Uh, in any capacity within the business world. I'm very, very passionate about providing that advice and guidance. So don't hesitate to reach out. Uh, You can consider me a friend if you took the time to listen through this episode and certainly warrant that as a a quality connection if someone wanted to reach out. And ultimately, yeah, from my side, would love to be in touch with anyone that ultimately listens to this podcast and found some value out of it and be a resource to them. And as uh, that mentor of mine, David Meltzer, would say, be of service to them. So no doubt about it. Please don't be shy. And I appreciate the time here today. All right. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, everybody should also check out speakerhub.com, a place where you can put your speak profile, find and connect with other speakers, go to call for speakers. People can hire you for speakers. And if you want to find me, you can find me on speakerhub.com. You can also find me at ryan.online, just my name, .online. I'm the only one out there. I'll see you next time. Max, thanks so much. Next time that I see you, at the airport, the hoverboard with a big cross out on it. I'll think about you and the lessons learned. All right, everybody. Take care. We'll talk to you soon. Awesome.